This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I am Justin Phillips. And I'm Solejo. I am in the studio. Justin's at home, but I get to eat <laughs> <laughs> Nepalese food, so I win. Yeah, yeah. You get, the, you get the W on this one. So on this show, we talk about food and what it all means by speaking with people in the Bay Area and beyond who are writing and thinking about how what we eat shapes us and connects us. On this episode, we speak with Similea Lua Adebajo, owner and head chef of San Francisco's first Nigerian restaurant, Echo Kitchen. I would say there's been a lot of performative kind of support for Black businesses. You see them on Twitter and Instagram. Um, they will tag you, repost your photo on the Instagram story. You're excited, right? Ah, these people are going to show up on Sunday to buy some food. But when it comes to Sunday, they are not there. On the day she talked with us, her restaurant, or at least part of it, burned down in a fire. Um, so we're really grateful that she decided to talk with us anyway. And the conversation was wonderful, all about just being a Black-owned business and working during the pandemic and just being a African woman in San Francisco and everything that goes along with it. It's a really great conversation. All right, and let's listen to the interview. Let's just get the big elephant in the room out of the way. Tell us what happened today. My day was, I guess, started off as usual, uh, except for that I woke up late this morning. Um, and so I was rushing to get into work because I uh, was supposed to hand off meals that are going to uh, a site for the homeless this morning. So I'm running towards my restaurant or our catering commissary on 14th Street, and I see smoke coming from that direction. But I, I never anticipated in my mind that it was the kitchen and it was actually coming from. Um, and so I was recording as I was walking up and I posted this on Twitter telling people to be careful because downtown area is kind of smoky. And then I get close enough to actually see where the smoke is coming from. And I realize it's actually coming from my commissary and they had blocked off like the entire um, perimeter of the block. So they didn't even want me to get through initially. And I had to convince one of the firefighters that, okay, my business is actually in there. I just want to make sure that everything is okay. And they let me through. And um, yeah, that's when I saw it was literally burning to the ground. Wow. I, I, I wouldn't even know what to do at that point. Yeah, I was feeling very confused. I sat there actually for at least an hour just watching them trying to get these flames under control, but kind of realized at some point that watching this place burn to the ground wasn't going to help my mental health either, so I walked away. <laughs> you you said one of the, th uh, something that was interesting that you said a, a little while before we started recording was... Uh, your first thoughts, you thought about uh, employees and the people that were the uh, above the apartment. Like your your yeah. first thought wasn't even about you know what you were losing in that moment, was it? Yeah, no, definitely not me. 
I mean, one thing I always try to think about is the fact that even though this is my life, billions of other people in the world and their lives matter as well. So I was walking up there thinking about, yeah, I just hope nobody's hurt in this um, situation. So, and I'm grateful that that was this, the case. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it could be so much worse, right? Yes, it could be. Maybe a silver lining in this is explain to us what that space was, because that's that wasn't the the space where Echo Kitchen actually opened open. Like, what what was that for you? So the 14th Street location was actually where my business first launched out of. Um, I uh, when Echo Kitchen launched in the summer of 2018, we were a delivery only business. We were delivering to Uber Eats and Postmates out of that 14th Street location. Um, and so that was like where my business was born. And we moved to the 11th Street restaurant a year after the business was launched at 14th Street. Um, and this week we were actually moving back to the 14th Street location because uh, the restaurant space wasn't really being used because of COVID, nobody could dine there. So I had made the business decision, you know, that we didn't need to continue paying rent on that uh, dine-in space since uh, people couldn't technically sit there anymore. So this week I had moved most of our inventory and our um, equipment from the restaurant to this 14th street space. And so we probably lost about 80% of our inventory and our equipment um, in the fire because of that. And my impression too, is that a lot of the, the inventory that you have isn't stuff that you could just pick up at a store here, right? Or like restaurant depot. Yeah, yeah, that's the part that <laughs> does give me a headache is um, I bring a lot of the stuff that we use at the restaurant from Nigeria. So I import it directly and then I have to go to SFO and sign paperwork with US Customs and all that. So I lost a lot of inventory that will take me another six to eight weeks at least to replace. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah so like what kind of stuff do you import from Nigeria? Um, organic unrefined palm oil. Um, I import the honey, Nigerian honey beans. Um, all, most of the spices we use at the restaurant, uh, things like agusi, Cameroon pepper, um, smoked uh, fish, and uh, yeah, it's a lot of stuff. Uh, drinks, we import Nigerian drinks um, and snacks as well, yeah. Wow. After something like this happens and someone whose uh, restaurant like yours relies on imports, what's the time frame of like, rebuilding to where you were before like being able to especially like during a pandemic i imagine it's a whole lot harder to get these items yeah so since the pandemic began basically we realized we we can't fly things into the country anymore so i used to do air freight and it would take literally one week for things to get from nigeria here when you put it on a plane um, but since the pandemic hit, the U.S. Customs has been very clear about not allowing air freight, air cargo anymore. So I have to put everything in shipping containers. And it takes literally a minimum of eight weeks between <laughs> Lagos and here. So it's going to be another eight weeks probably before I can get um, the, the full stock back. Yeah. Wow. I'm curious if you have an impression of how the pandemic has affected Nigerian producers that you've relied on. 
Uh, yeah, it's definitely affected them big time. Even when you talk about just the, the state of the Naira and Nigerian exchange rate before the pandemic, um, I think the, the exchange rate for the Naira was somewhere around 360 Naira was $1 um, as of today. And that uh, growth rate is between, uh, I would say, April and now. The Naira is now at 470 Naira to $1. So it tells you a lot about um, the economy in Nigeria has really suffered due to uh, the pandemic and people having to stay home obviously has slowed down businesses significantly and even just getting the order to the shipper because I have people on the ground in Nigeria who go to the market for me. So even just finding the supplies right now is so much harder because a lot of the people just stopped selling these things because there wasn't enough demand for them. Um, so it's definitely going to be a challenge, but yeah, where there's life, there's hope. You, you always have something positive to say, no matter <laughs> what, the, no matter what I bring up to you. And I love that. So on a personal note, how are your people back there? How the people that you work, the producers that you work with, how are they handling what life is like down there? So while COVID is definitely spreading in Nigeria, um, because the Nigerian government uh, doesn't have the capacity to test sufficiently. There's over 200 million people in Nigeria. Um, the Nigerian government has probably done maybe 10,000 tests in total since this pandemic started, mm -hmm. maybe. Um, and that's just, that's the capacity that they have. So there's so many people walking around in Nigeria right now with this illness. Um, they tried to do a lockdown initially, but when it's a country where 80% of the population is living on less than a dollar a day, you can't tell people to stay at home because they will literally starve. Um, people are living literally hand to mouth. So the lockdown didn't work. And so we are seeing people passing away at alarming rates. Um, and the doctors in the hospitals don't even understand COVID. So they're saying it's a new strain of malaria, but it's not a new strain of malaria. It's COVID-19. <laughs> They've just never seen anything like it before. So it's um, definitely stressful, honestly, to watch. And I know that it's, it's going to get worse progressively as the disease continues to spread more and more through the country. We just don't have the health infrastructure to, to address uh, a pandemic. Yeah. So what have you been doing ever since the pandemic started? You know, I think so many restaurateurs and caterers and folks have had to kind of figure it out, right? And like just hit the ground running in some way in order to survive. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to? Yeah. So um, initially when the pandemic hit in March, we went from doing you know, whatever we we're doing in a weekend, we went to like 30% of the revenue that we were usually doing. Um, so very quickly, I realized that I couldn't keep my team on and I let everybody go. This was towards the end of March. Um, and I told them, you know, I'm going to call you back. I don't know how, but I'm going to figure something out. And I tried to instill some sense of hope in them. And so it wasn't all gloom and doom. And a few weeks later, I got in touch with um, San Francisco New Deal, uh, which is a nonprofit started by Lenore Estrada of Three Babes Bakery and um, Emmett Sher, who is one of the co-founders of Twitch. And it's funny because I met Lenore over a year ago uh, at a women's entrepreneurship event. And I used to work for Twitch uh, as a financial analyst before I started my restaurant. So it felt kind of serendipitous that the two of them had put that concept together. 
and I signed up to be a part of the program. Uh, and this program is amazing because they are addressing the issue of food insecurity in San Francisco. On a weekly basis, we are sending meals to vulnerable populations, including the homeless, um, the elderly, and those who are COVID-19 positive in the congregate uh, hotel sites that the city has all over the city. So um, on a weekly basis, we send out probably around 600 meals to these all these sites. And since the beginning of April till now, I have cooked every single one of those meals by myself. Um, and so I, this week was actually the week where I just hired a team. I was just um, about to set this whole operation on autopilot and basically have everything kind of run itself because while I was doing this, this felt like it was so fulfilling. The work I've been doing the past three months has been so fulfilling because not only am I getting to continue sharing my food with the city, now I'm feeding these populations who actually need it. Um, and so I was happy to be doing it, but obviously uh, me cooking 600 meals by myself on a weekly basis, I was starting to burn out. And so um, I felt like, okay, now it's time to hire a team. I finally got the team in place and now this, but um, I don't think this is uh, too huge of an obstacle. I feel like uh, we'll, we'll move past this. You know, uh, so Simi, you moved here in 2016, right? Yes, I moved here in 2016. And now you're working with a uh, with a nonprofit that addresses, you know, the uh, the needy communities in the city. I'm wondering what were you surprised by the amount of need in this city, like since you've been here? I feel like it's it's a shock. It was a shock for me when I moved here. So major shock for me, moving to San Francisco and seeing the kind of poverty that was here. As in, I feel like when you come from a country like Nigeria, obviously you've ex experienced poverty and need on a, on a on a large scale, but there's something about Nigeria where there's community. And so people are never really destitute, if that makes any sense. And so when I moved to San Francisco and I saw like people that are poor and literally homeless and laying on the streets, I feel like my first two months here, I used to give my money away to every homeless person that I saw, listen to everybody's story, try to help this person, try to you know, see how I can connect with them. Um, and over time, I realized that people here just become so numb to that because you lived here for so long or oh, you just say oh yeah there are homeless people here it's part of the problem and even people would ask me like oh but you're from nigeria haven't you seen poor people before haven't you seen homeless? and i'm like i have but i've never experienced people literally being destitute to the point where they don't even have a meal to eat in a day they don't have a roof over their heads they're laying in the street starving they don't have toilets to use Public toilets should be a human right, yet San Francisco, somehow, we don't have those for the homeless. And so I felt that somehow me being so connected and aware of the need within the community was also what led me to this opportunity working with this nonprofit because if I wasn't even aware mentally that that was such a huge issue, I wouldn't even have known that that nonprofit was going to launch or was in existence, so I guess, uh, that awareness kind of went hand in hand with where my business is right now. Yeah, I think what you're saying is so interesting because, you know, in the U.S., I, you know, I was raised here in New York City and um, 
our attitude towards people who are living through poverty is so bad. It's like yes. we blame them, right. you know, um, yeah. largely for the straits they find themselves in. And I would love to hear more about the sort of Nigerian attitude towards people who find themselves among the poor um, or if maybe in Lagos or, you know, uh, what is like, how do people act? One thing I would say is, yeah, there's definitely poverty in Nigeria. But what, um, what are the example I would give best is like in terms of people not even having a place to live, you hardly see that in Nigeria because because you'll see like these shanty structures that they'll build out of like planks of wood or bamboo shoots or whatever. And there will literally be, maybe this is like a 200 square feet structure, square foot structure that they've built and 11 people are living inside this structure. They would rather band together, you know, like within within the confines of whatever limited resources they have and help each other than, you know, this person sleeping under the bridge here and this person sleeping in a doorway there. Is even amongst the homeless and the poor people in Nigeria, you see community. And I don't know why it is in America that you see a lot of the homeless people here. And, you know, there is uh, the issue of mental illness, which isn't a huge issue, I would say, with the poverty in Nigeria, but with San Francisco, there that is a major, you know, overlying factor that also leads us to, to understand that it the, the city actually has to intervene on a lot of th these cases because these people actually can't help themselves out of the situation they're in because they're just not mentally stable enough to do that. So is there a robust, I mean, this is like politics stuff. I'm so curious. I'm, you know, I want to hear about it. But um, is there a robust like mental health care, like infrastructure in Nigeria, like in the urban centers or... Um, I would say no, but in, in, in Nigeria, I would say there's less of the poor people with the mental health issues. But like here, you would think that given the fact that there is this robust, um, um, you know, infrastructure and there are so many healthcare providers that can work with people with mental health issues, that a lot of the people that you see on San Francisco streets with mental health issues would be getting help. But um, yeah, we just really don't see that. You'd see them sometimes even taken to prison and returned to the same spot two weeks later. There's a man around the corner from my restaurant who I became friends with at some point. And I know he has a mental illness. The police picked him up at some point when he had a, a vi somewhat violent incident. And three weeks later, he was back again in the same spot. So, you know, they, they pushed them through this cycle and really there is no solution. Well, one of the things that stood out to me, like even before, even before I moved here, I knew one truth about the Bay Area and that was black people weren't really around here. And over the years, they had been moving out, you know, priced yeah. out, whatever the reason. Yeah. But... If you go around certain parts of the city, most of the homeless people that you'll see will be black people. This shocks me so much. And I say this all the time is that most times I feel like I'm the only black woman left in San Francisco. I get on the bus 
and everybody on the bus is avoiding the seat next to me. <laughs> I go into a store or, you know, that even that looks even remotely expensive. It doesn't even have to be Gucci. Maybe it's just uh, Bloomingdale's <laughs> or you walk into Nordstrom and suddenly attendants are following you. Yep. And, you know, you, you have all these situations and you think, okay, there are actually other black people in this city. And this brings me to another issue that came up with the nonprofit that is something that I constantly discuss with them. So the RFQ885 is a program that the city of San Francisco has that is supposed to be feeding the elderly, right? And so there are a lot of older people who cannot leave their houses right now because of the coronavirus, but they need to get food. Now, the qualifications for this program are that you cannot be on any other governmental assist food assistance program. And the second qualification is that you cannot be living in a multi-generational household. So do you know who that disqualifies yeah. entirely from this feeding program? Yeah. All of the elderly black people in the city of San Francisco. Right. So this program that has millions of dollars of funding that should be able to feed all of the elderly communities here is currently only able to feed Asian and white elderly communities in the city. The black communities have been excluded simply because of the fact that they're on some sort of governmental uh, assistance or they live with their grandchildren. And I think that's so bizarre. These policies need to be reviewed because right now, more than ever, the black community needs more assistance than other communities because we're dying at uh, disproportionately higher rates than um, the other groups. I mean, that's what I'm saying, right? In the U.S., we have such a punitive attitude towards people in need. And, you know, they need things because they're bad people. And that's why we have yeah. to filter and put all these, like, this testing and have all of these these hoops in order for people yeah. to, like, jump through so that they can get help, which is, yeah. if you need help, you're in a much worse position to jump through a hoop, you know? Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. You are listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We will be right back after the break. I am Justin Phillips, and we're back with Simile Alua Adebajo, owner and head chef of San Francisco's first Nigerian restaurant, Echo Kitchen. So, Simi, you bring it up like that, um, you know, a couple of things that are inherently anti-Black when it comes to uh, the city. That leads us to kind of like talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and... Soleil brought this up to me earlier, but uh, a recent story that I did was about how black businesses that have done well after speaking out on social media, and then you had a lot of uh, non-black residents in the Bay Area who run to these businesses to spend money to support them. Um, What has the reaction been for you in terms of operations? Like, do you see more white people coming in to buy food? Like, are the takeout orders up or people honestly rushing out trying to support black businesses what have you seen are they tipping more out of reparations like what's happening (laughs) right yeah what's the deal i would say there's been a lot of performative kind of support for black businesses Ah. you see them on twitter and instagram um they will tag you repost your photo on the instagram story you're excited right ah these people are going to show up on sunday to buy some food but when it comes to sunday 
they are not there. <laughs> Look, a lot of people right now, in, this is my own experience with my business. I guess some other businesses have had different experiences. Um, I would say the first two or three weeks, we were getting tagged by hundreds of locals on a daily basis. You know, just um, white people who were just discovering our businesses um, and just like reposting and tagging our content and saying, oh, this picture of this food looks amazing and this looks amazing. Um, people reaching out to us. And while I appreciated, obviously, the exposure, it was like, okay, so now is this exposure actually going to convert into revenue for me? And in my case, it really didn't. Um, the people that did show up were the people that have been coming to my business for months. Um, so I would say maybe maybe this boosted my customer acquisition, new customer acquisition, 10, 10%, maybe 15%. Um, but not in a huge way. And I think a lot of other black businesses will tell you similarly yeah, that there's been a lot of performative support. So on social media, let your friends think that you're woke to the, the, <laughs> the black businesses and you're trying to support them, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually going there and buying anything. So uh, that's the world we live in. <laughs> I feel like you have a pretty reasoned approach to this too, because you know you went viral when your when your restaurant yeah. launched, and yeah. I think I remember you telling Justin when he interviewed you that like it didn't really shake out to too much in the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. The exposure does not always convert to revenue. Yeah, to like, <laughs> that's one thing I've learned in life. Yeah, yeah. I I wrote about this a while ago, where uh, like the extent of support when it comes to white dollars stops at businesses that are too black. Now, I don't know how to quantify like too black, but you know, I feel like, I feel like a Nigerian restaurant might fit that category. Very black. There you go. Very, very. I feel like, yeah, we've definitely even had some people that would come in in the past uh, three to four weeks. And because obviously of COVID, I've had to cut down on my menu, just cut down on, because we're trying to run a tight ship here. Um, resources are limited, so we have to be smart. And so you have people who are new to the business now calling and saying, okay, I saw this menu of yours online and I want this. And I'm like, okay, sorry, this is COVID. We have a four item limited menu right now. Um, we'll email you or you can check on our website for this menu. And then the person is like, well, why would you have this online? <laughs> If you don't have it, oh sir, there's God. a global pandemic <laughs> and you would be shocked by how many people have called and literally flipped out on us in the past two months for saying that we are limiting our menu right now. And it's just like, we do you not understand that everybody is having to literally cut their cloth according to their size right now? Like human beings, we all just need to learn to be more patient with one another, especially this year. <laughs> Along those lines, I'm curious about how you feel about the visibility of your business as a specifically Black-owned one in this context. Like what what is kind of behind that? Or is that part of your marketing at this point? Mm, I would say it's, it's part of my marketing uh, but also sometimes I feel as though if I had a different face to my business, it probably would have been more successful. Like if you were a white guy selling um, Nigerian food? Exactly. 100%. <laughs> I thought about it before too. Like maybe I can just like, 
I can just like disappear and then make it seem like a white guy bought my business and then see what <laughs> see what happens. Have you seen that movie uh, with like um, Whoopi Goldberg, The Associate? It's like yeah. one of my all-time favorite movies. It's exactly yeah. that. Oh, so man. I've thought about that, but also it's it's like um, when you think about the fact that even when it comes to access to capital, uh, when it comes to business expansion, when it comes to um, having just access to resources and a network of mentors, black owned and minority owned businesses generally are just not getting the resources that they should be. Um, so I, I, while I feel as though, yeah, maybe having a different face to my business would have led me in a different financial direction, um, being a black owned business in this city has really brought to my attention the fact that there are not enough Black-owned businesses in San Francisco. Um, it feels as though the Black community has been cordoned off to certain areas. I recently only discovered um, Bayshore and Bayview and that huge block of what is supposed to be, I guess, the projects of San Francisco up there, and that there are thousands of Black people living in this city, but they're just cordoned off to one zone of the city. And it tells you something about San Francisco and the way the city kind of places value on diversity. Um, but yeah, it, it's, um, it's interesting. And I'm glad to also be kind of like a, a point of reference and a beacon of light. In the past six months, I've had so many African-American women um, in the city just send me a message or send me an email and say, I saw you know, your restaurant and this encouraged me to start sharing food with my community and start selling these meals out of my home or something. And that's enough for me that somebody saw me and that gave them enough courage to start um, because there should be more opportunities and more avenues for uh, minority and black owned businesses in San Francisco. Looking forward a little bit, let's just circle back to uh, what, your, what your next steps are um, for the restaurant and, and what you have going on in San Francisco. So uh, for my next steps for the restaurant, honestly, is to continue with a focus mostly on feeding the community. I'm going to continue working with San Francisco New Deal on this project. Um, I think it's important that we continue to feed these vulnerable populations because food insecurity was a problem before the pandemic. But now that the pandemic has hit, there is there are so many more people in need um, of food. And so it's important that we continue this mission and that this mission continues to remain funded. So that's another thing is right now, um, San Francisco New Deal has run out of the private funds that we had in the beginning. So we had an initial endowment that was donated by um, some tech CEOs who were interested in obviously giving to the city. And we are running out of those funds. And those funds in particular were the funds that were able to feed the black community because the government funding disqualified them based on all the hoops and requirements. So uh, I'm, I'm going to be continuing to work with them on making the meals and also raising funds for them so that we can continue to feed the Black community. Um, and focusing more on that as opposed to my regular restaurant operations because uh, I'm learning that there's more fulfillment in that side of the business for me anyways. 
And um, in addition to that, I'm also launching a new business out of San Francisco within the next two months. Um, that also links back to Nigeria and my origins back home. Um, it's uh, going to be an organic skin and hair care business for everyone, but uh, with ingredients and things coming straight from the motherland to you. There's nothing more disheartening than going to like Target or something to buy either <laughs> lotion or a hair product specifically for a black for black hair and black skin and not being able to find a thing, not because it's sold out, but straight up because they don't have it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, especially in San Francisco. When I moved here, I found out there is no black hair care store in San Francisco. There is one store in the Fillmore that sells black hair care products, but it is owned by an Asian couple. Mm, I see. And so you go in that store, they have everything that you would need in black for black hair care, but it's not owned by, a, uh, you know, the black community. So technically it's just pouring money out of our community into another one yet again. And so that's, I guess, another thing that hopefully with this new business I'll be able to wrap in is bringing, you know, black hair and skincare to the city in a way where we have our own space for that. So do you already have a name for that skincare, hair care company? Yeah, it's going to be called Ori. And Ori in uh, Yoruba language, uh, which is my native tongue, means shea butter. Yeah, yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so I'm excited for that. I guess the last question would be, you know, if there are listeners who want to support your work or support you in any way, um, what should they do? Um, so if you would like to support us, uh, please go to uh, SF New Deal's website. That's www.sfnewdeal.org. You can donate to this organization to help us to continue feeding the Black community. Um, we will most likely also set up a GoFundMe for my business and the three or four other businesses that were impacted um, within um, the Be Safe House fire. That location on 14th Street was called Be Safe House. Um, and there were three other women-owned businesses and um, uh, one, another one that was a food production business. They make vegan bacon um, that were all impacted by this fire. So most likely we'll be setting up a GoFundMe and um, if you can donate to that to help us recover our things, that would be great as well. Well, awesome. Well, That's yeah, it. this was this was fun. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, this was great. I'm glad I did this. She did start that GoFundMe and you can find the link to it in the description of this podcast or on the show page at sfchronicle.com slash spicy. So... Yeah, Justin, did I talk too much about like society during this interview? <laughs> no. I mean, <laughs> I, I will never tell you that you talk too much about society. I, I And look, I felt like Simi was just really into talking about everything. So, I mean, the conversation naturally would have gone there anyway, probably. Okay. Yeah. No, it's dangerous for me when people are willing to take on, you know, America and talk about why <laughs> this country is so messed up and bad. I That's like catnip for me. Yeah. <laughs> You run straight to it. I respect it. You know, um, I just I just have to say this real quick. One thing that I do want to want to point out is that we got a little bit of a scoop uh, out of this podcast. I mean, look, I'm pretty impressed with our timeliness, Soleil. Like we are journalists with a capital J, but we also got you know, Simi talked openly about her response to a fire that literally had happened just a couple of hours before we recorded. 
And also, she told us about a new business that she has that she's going to launch. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm so excited about this hair, skincare, beauty products business. And I was shocked to learn that there are no Black-owned businesses of that type in the city. Let me take it a step further. So we were sitting there, we were in that interview, we are joking about like being able to find black products. I have to find black hair products for my hair because I've let it like grow out and stuff. So I have to use specific products, right? And a lot of them, you know, you have some that are called like African Best, African Pride, like Do Grow, like with D-O-O Grow, Dark and Lovely. All the brands I just mentioned are not owned by black people. And most of them, <gasps> most of them are owned by white dudes. I won't say what? most, a significant number. This thing blew my mind uh, a couple of weeks ago because somebody like posted a photo of the owner of like African Best maybe, or it was like African Stop. Pride and it was a white dude. Yeah. So, and and I lived religiously by these hair products. Like, Legit can't go. I can go in my my bathroom right now and get like you know Shea Moisture or something like that. But I looked at that list and realized that they aren't black owned. So the fact that Simi's opening, uh, you know, she's gonna be an African woman opening a hair care and skincare, you know, beauty esque business in the city is just unbelievable. Wait, Justin. So you're saying that white people can't use black hair products? Like, I mean, <laughs> you, you're saying they can't appreciate black hair? I mean, they can appreciate it. Just don't, you know, ask if you can touch it. And uh, you can use whatever you want, whatever makes you feel beautiful as a person. On that note, I feel like that would be a good opportunity to transition to our next segment. What? What? Is. What is this? What is this nonsense? Uh, This week we are doing what is this nonsense, which I'm so excited for. So my cousin, you know, my cousins are very in tune with what's happening in Vietnam. They get very interested in all this stuff. And so my cousin Antoine sent me a picture of a flyer from Domino's in Vietnam that showed uh, pho flavored pizza. And it's a limited run thing, but it's got like slices of like really cooked beef and meatballs and slices of white onion and Thai basil on like a cheese pizza base. Um, oh wow so it's just like pho toppings on top um it's yeah i I don't like that i mean obviously (laughs) a lot sits wrong about that what sticks out for you though that's what i'm curious about i think it's the like thin slices of beef because generally right in pho you have the beef and it's really it's tender, you know, it's not cooked for too long, but I feel like if you're baking it on a pizza, it's gonna get really tough and rubbery. For sure, for sure. And like jerky-like. So that's another thing. The other thing is what I've noticed being the descendant of refugees from Vietnam is a lot of people back in Asia, they don't care about the authenticity, right? And that's like a thing that we as descendants are very invested in because it's part of our like weird reckoning with our identities. But back home, they don't give a damn about <laughs> any of that they will put pho on pizza they will put cheese and ramen it's all just whatever for them oh interesting because you know like like simi said right when you are in the home country you're among your people you don't have to prove anything i mean would you try it if the opportunity presented itself it's so beefy i don't know i guess i'm curious to know what kind of sauce goes underneath is it tomato sauce it kind of looks like it i mean i don't know it just looks like cheese so 
I'm curious about that. I would try it. I don't know. I mean, I'm a fat kid. I love anything, so I'd probably try it. <laughs> well, I think for me, it's the pairing of like star anise and cinnamon with cheese. Oh, it's a little disturbing. Mmm, <laughs> yum. Have you ever had cinnamon and cheese together? I have not. Nah, not on purpose. I'll say that for damn sure. Exactly. So I don't know. That I'm worried. I'm scared. I it's still like I love that they're doing this during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Human resilience is totally just jaw dropping. So that's all we have for today's episode. Thanks again to Simile Alua Adebajo for being in conversation with us. You can read the transcript of our interview with Simi at sfchronicle.com slash spicy. And remember to send us any questions, maybe through voice memo or through writing, that you might have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thank you for listening. Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Erica Carlos is the producer of the show. If you like the Extra Spicy podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Soleil Ho, on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at Just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod. 